if we have the ability to know how a food is going to affect you, then you could potentially have food sources that you could print that would be directly tailored to your own nutritional and genetic needs. You know, that you have a propensity for, you know, this particular condition, or you yeah. have, you, you do have this existing condition and you, you get a food that's generated to be able to work with your body. Like, you know, say you're lact lactose intolerant, that's a no brainer. You have food that's no lactose and, or, you know, I don't know, maybe we edit those genes in the future and we don't need to worry about that. But um, I definitely think tailored food, tailored medicine is a future thing that would we would have on spaceships. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The sandbox is turning into a kitchen for this episode, and while we can't feed you actual food, hopefully we can feed you some knowledge. J. Diane Dotson joins me here in the sandbox to talk about food in fiction. We'll start off with an appetizer of rapid-fire questions, followed by a starter salad of literary devices, then the main course meal of food across different genres. For a little dessert, we tease a future of lab-printed food. Jay, Diane Dodson, thank you so much for joining me on Speculative Sandbox today. I'm so excited to have you on here. Uh, for those that are just getting to know you, or even for some of your bigger fans that are following you along the, the podcasting uh, tour, um, how about you introduce yourself and tell us about your, your latest project? Hi, thank you so much for having me. As you said, I'm Jay Diane Dodson, but call me Diane. I am a science fiction, fantasy, and horror author of tomorrow's release. The Shadow Galaxy, a collection of short stories and poetry out from Tre Tre Trepidatio Publishing, sorry. And that is my traditional publishing debut, but I'm also a hybrid author. I have four space opera books of the Quester Zone saga, Heliopause, Ephemeris, Accretion, and Luminiferous. And I also have an, another upcoming debut later this year, which is my first young adult Lunar Punk Science Fiction Fantasy Book, The Inn at the Amethyst Lantern, out October 24th from Android Press. So I'm also a science writer and an artist, so I keep pretty busy. Yeah, you do sound really busy. That sounds awesome. How do you, how do you handle so many projects at once? I think I just try to portion out my day accordingly, and sometimes different days are tagged for different things. The science writing has its own deadlines. And so everything else kind of has to work around that as well as my being a parent to two teens and their school schedules. So regarding the writing of fiction, I carve out the time when I can. Mm -hmm. And that's always, that's how I've always done it. You know, when they were much younger, they would go to bed earlier. And now as they're teenagers, they don't. So I just have to kind of, you know, pluck out that time and get it done. I relate to that. I have one preteen and one young child and it is hard. It's really yeah. hard to find that time. So kudos to you. You are a highly productive author writer and um, that is just an inspiration for many people who want to be able to juggle projects with their, their life and their family needs. So great job on that. 
Oh, thank you. Just remember to take time for yourself once in a while. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I have set up some rapid fire warm up questions. That's what I've been doing this season with all of my writers. So I did not send these ahead of time. So I'm going to surprise you with them. And some of them are just general and some of them are related to today's topic. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. The first one is what draws you most to science fiction stories? Well, I've always loved science fiction since I was a toddler, actually, you know, when I watched Star Trek reruns back before we had cable and Star Wars, A New Hope was the first movie I remember seeing on the big screen. And I was three when it came out. So I've always loved the possibility of science fiction. The fact that you can sort of have a taste of real world science, but then you speculate, you know, you, you push out the boundaries into space, into inner space, into tiny and enormous things. And I love the scale and scope of it. And it's a giant playground to play in as a writer. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely my favorite genre of several smaller favorites. It seems like with sci-fi literature, um, it seems like it's an opportunity to be optimistic about science, but also an opportunity to be cautious about science. So which direction do you like to go? I actually like to play in both. And sometimes I think when it comes to sort of more dystopian future stuff, you know, I, I don't tend to write as much of that, but I like to dig into what can be quite scary, how things can go wrong, you know, and, but I, I also like to bring it back to some hope. Now in my collection that comes out tomorrow, the shadow galaxy, I have some pretty intense short stories in that collection. Some of them are wildly optimistic about the future and others quite horrific so you know and I, I love just dancing back and forth between that and between all the subgenres. and I find it that's one of the appeals of science fiction is that you can do both yes it sounds so fun too to be able to speculate like that and and use society as like your own like action figures to speculate yeah. on what could happen yeah okay if you were stuck on a desert island that had all the food drink and shelter you needed so that's taken care of what three things would you want? My husband, Gareth, okay. <laughs> um, who is a wonderful, delightful man. Yeah, he is. I'd want some Wi-Fi. Okay. <laughs> um, and then you've said food, but dark chocolate has to be there. So I'm just going to double down on the dark chocolate. Okay, great. <laughs> so speaking of food, what is your favorite meal in real life? Oh gosh, I love food a lot. I cook and I bake and I like to eat out. Um, so there's a lot of foods that I would love to have if I could only pick one. It's really hard. I'd have to narrow it down to probably three. I would probably say al pastor tacos. Um, I love those too. Yes. Benganbarta, the eggplant curry. Okay. And um, Tom Ka, this Thai coconut soup. That sounds amazing. All of that sounds amazing. Absolutely. So then switching into fiction, are there any fictional meals that you really like or would wish that you could try? Yes. I actually write a lot about food in my books because I do love food so much. Um, And so in in the Questers on Saga, there's a lot of talk of food. In the second book, Ephemeris, there is a chef, an alien chef with several arms. and And in that future in the galaxy, it's chefs are luxuries, you know, that only the most, you know, high up people in the galaxy would ever even have a chef because everything, of course, in the future would be sort of replicated or that sort of thing, but having an actual chef. So I really like the berry tarts that Sumand makes in Ephemeris. I would want those little purple tarts. And then other foods in fiction that I would love. I always loved the lunch pail tree in the Oz books for in Ozma of Oz by L. Frank Baum, where Dorothy is, I think it's in the land of Ev which is one of the lands surrounding the land of us. And she plucks down this lunch pill tree and it's got your whole kit of lunch inside of it. That's just like blooming on the tree. <laughs> when it's ripe, you pick it. So I always loved, loved, loved that. And um, I read the Little House books as a kid by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I would get really hungry reading about pancakes in a blizzard. <laughs> oh yeah. I used to like to, I would, I would try to make pancakes to go with that whenever to re- reread, you know, a long winter book, you know, about that. So those are some of my favorite foods and fiction. I, I love fiction where the food grows off plants, like the surroundings, but not like in its raw form, but like, if you yeah. could just like pluck a completed meal, almost like I mean, Willy Wonka, I guess. <laughs> the chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, 
highly ideal. <laughs> I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up um, since a lot of people have been talking about it. Have you had a chance to see the menu? The movie, Not the yet. it's on my list to see. Like, okay. that is one of my top movies I want to watch in the next couple of weeks with Gareth. So, okay. Highly, highly recommend because it's got some okay. chilling kind of, you know, perspectives on, but it food does art. go into like, what does food mean for the individual, for the society, for art? So, okay. Then I won't go into any further than that. I don't want to spoil anything. All right. My last warm up is if you were Alice in Wonderland, would you readily follow the directions of eat this and drink this? Smell it first. <laughs> <laughs> it smelled good. I'd be, yeah, maybe I'll do it. You know, why not? But if it smelled okay. bad, I'm not doing it, you know? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so today we're talking, I feel like I've warmed us up and maybe we've got, we're hungry and maybe our listeners are hungry at I this point. <laughs> our topic today is food and fiction so to get us started tell me what interested you in this topic well I've always had a strong interest in food I grew up in East Tennessee and the place where I grew up that my parents had for much of my childhood until they moved back to the town had a big plot of land and we would garden and um my parents would garden, we had a big garden. We also had, because my grandmother had planted a lot of wonderful plants and trees there. We had, we had pecan trees, we had cherry trees, you know, we had all these different fruits and vegetables and there would be wild blackberries and I would go blackberry picking along the railroad tracks close to my house. So I was always kind of taking in whatever I could from my surroundings. And I loved food and fiction, like I said, about the Laura Ingalls Wilder books that I often would be inspired to cook. I learned how to bake but at a pretty early age. I was, I remember I had, I was part of like a biscuit making competition for 4-H in my grade school. Oh, and, cool. And then, I didn't know they did that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. And then later, was it like eighth grade that we had uh, home ec and we had to prepare an entire meal, like full course. And ours was the best. And like, I remember I kind of just took over everybody because they didn't, they hadn't baked like I did or make candy because I also was a candy maker as a young teen. Ooh, okay. My parents really loved this, by the way. So, but I, uh, I took over my team and I was like, we're going to do this and this and this. I was like a, a, like a little chef and um, we had the best meal. And um, then later after college, I had gone through a lot of turmoil and I had to move back to my hometown after getting a science degree. And I had the only job I could get was at a restaurant. And it was like, um, it was a two faceted restaurant. Like during the day, it was like a deli and, and a barbecue. And in the night it was fine dining. So I did all of that. And I really dug into my love for um, feeding people and learning catering, which is something I've always want, liked to do. I always provided chocolate covered strawberries to friends, like at their weddings, you know, and stuff like that. So I just really dug deep into food. And I, most of what I read that is nonfiction is cookbooks. Oh, Yes. <laughs> I love cookbooks. a lot of food bloggers and I have for decades. And so the food has always kind of just been there as sort of a piece of my world building because I'm always thinking about food. Yes. So if, a hobbit crossed with an elf. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to create your own food truck right now, what would, what would it be? Oh my God. Okay. Well, it'd have to have tacos, um, okay. not fast store, but also vegetarian and vegan versions. And so in addition to that, there would be, I would have probably a lot of my baked goods, like my double chocolate brownies, which tomorrow's book launch, I'm bringing those to San Diego because I always have my book signing brownies and everybody's always like, oh, are they special brownies? And I'm like, I know what you're saying, but they're special because I made them. Yes. They're special really with love. <laughs> so, so yeah. And then I would have probably some Southern stuff, like really good fluffy biscuits. I would probably have cake and I love pies. So there'd be pies. I'd probably do some nice soups in the winter and and look things that you can carry that are not hard to to travel with to eat um i love burritos so I'd, i would have like the best most delicious food truck and i would have some kind of fun drinks i would have smoothies and i'd have juices probably inspired by some of my science fiction fantasies Ooh, that would be so fun i would love to see a food truck that was like literature book related um I I should maybe I should start one in my region because that go. would be amazing. Ooh, okay, good. as a writer, then as a creative, what would you call your food truck? Ooh, okay. Hmm. Let me think about this for a second. You're like Diane's devilishly delicious delights. 
Oh, let's see. Probably, um, I don't know that it would be a really food-related title, but it probably hmm. would be. Um... Would it be more um, abstract? More, or maybe it's like a play on words. Maybe stars and cakes. Okay. I love that. Yeah. It sounds, I would want to go there and eat some cake. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you told me when we were emailing back and forth on a topic that you wrote an article about food and fiction. I would love to know what that article was about. Yeah. So this is on medium. Anybody can read it. It's a, let's talk about food and science fiction and fantasy. And I dug into different classic books. For example, of course, Lord of the Rings comes to mind for fantasy because you have Lembas, you know, the elvish waybread. You have the hobbits constantly obsessing about food, which is highly relatable to me, you know, food and beer and just all that. And Tolkien goes into such detail about all these different foods that his characters have. And it makes that world, Middle Earth, seem so lived in mm -hmm. and so relatable. And then, of course, when food scarcity comes later, you know, when Frodo and Sam are in Mordor, you know, and all they have left is that Limbus, which, you know, as hobbits is really not the best food in the world, but it sustains them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I thought that was a powerful metaphor for, you know, scarcity and wartime. And I know that was highly relevant in World War One, which, you know, Tolkien was part of. So in addition to that, I talked about, um, did I think I mentioned His Dark Materials because the cocoa scene, you know, with Mrs. Coulter luring the kids. You oh, know, yes. As the head gobbler of the General Oblation Board, luring kids with cocoa. Then, of course, Dune. I talked about Dune because they mentioned that um, melange, the spice, tastes like cinnamon. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's that. And then, of course, the fact that on a desert planet like Arrakis that you have such another another scarcity situation right where you've no water except what you can reclaim from your own body or from precious little in the atmosphere I even liked that about Star Wars with like blue milk and things like that you yeah. know and also moisture farming and all of these little things add up to really good world building and of course I mentioned Oz um, with the lunch pail tree but also there is a fairy that befriends Dorothy and Ozma later named Polychrome and she's the rainbow's daughter and the sky fairies, they don't consume food like we do. So she subsists on mist cakes and cloud buns. Oh. <laughs> and dew drops. Like one dew drop, like she's our size, right? But like one dew drop and she's good. She's good for like days. So I just love all these different ways of thinking about food and characters and world building. That sounds so efficient. Like I wish, especially yeah. when you're in like a writer's high and you're getting things done and like, you don't want to stop and eat sometimes. Yeah. Like if I could just have a dew drop that will sustain me for a oh, day, that'd drop. be fantastic. Same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really fun exploration of, of how to build that into the world. And I talked a bit about the Questers on Saga and about the, you know, the tarts, but I also, Pie is keeps coming up as kind of a theme. Um, there's a character named Meredith, and she always offers pie as comfort. And it's one of the few things that she can make on Mandira Research Station at the edge of our solar system. And then when things get more galactic, you get these exotic foods. And, and then eventually it becomes a family heritage situation where one of her descendants kind of takes up the mantle that she had and, and makes all these wonderful things. And, and then there's like different pastries that are mentioned there's different drinks there's a drink called silka which is a sort of a kind of like a mix between coffee and yerba mate and sort of a caffeinated sort of curryish kind of drink oh um, interesting and yeah so and then i talk about how you know because i like to lean into ecology and and how different plants survive in different conditions you know and, and environments i talk a little bit about that in in my books too so would you say you're a sweet or savory person? I mean, historically I've been sweet tooth, like notorious in my family, but later in life, I'm enjoying more savory foods, partly because I am cooking a lot and going outside of my comfort realm and trying new things. And also being now that I'm living in Los Angeles, I have like the best food on the planet right mm -hmm. outside my door. And so I'm able to try all these different cuisines and extremely fresh produce that's grown super locally. And so you know, I've become more savory, gotcha. but I, I, I will always break for pie, brownies, 
cookies and cake. And I tend to make all of those things throughout the year. And holidays are an extravaganza for me. I go all the way out, just all the way out. That's awesome. Okay. So then for writers that want to incorporate food into their stories, I did some quick digging real quick before, like when I was prepping for uh, this interview and I saw a couple like categorizations as far as why people use food in fiction. And I I wanted to read them and then I wanted to get your input on them and we can like unpack each of them. So one was to ground a work because Mm -hmm. taste is one of our five primary senses. And so food imagery can make the most crazy seem familiar. Um, There's to connect characters as they break bread, um, to also educate on different cultures. And then sometimes food is used as a tool like pomegranate seeds, Demeter mm-hmm. Hel- keeping Demeter Hell side for half the year or the right. drink in the food in um, Alice in Wonderland to change her shape. Um, but some examples of, you know, getting speculative of different cultures, what you were saying with the milk in The Last Jedi, Ray and the inflating bread in The Force yeah. Awakens, and then Force the Death Day yeah. party in Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, where everything's kind of like decaying on on the table but that's how ghosts pretend to consume food so yeah what are your thoughts on on like those deliberate uses of food as a tool i think it's a really fun topic and i i use well technically a drink as a tool in my books to kind of underline how vulnerable a character is or isn't because you know you talk about allison uh, alice in wonderland is like drinking something that transforms her right and um becomes important to the plot and how she can get to different places but it also kind of underlines vulnerability of a character. And I use that uh, in my books with the character Galadea is essentially ageless and very powerful while being innocent at the same time. But someone finds out or she finds out accidentally that there is a drink that will cause her great disarray. And it's called Strophy Liqueur. And it's this brilliant ultramarine, ultramarine blue drink. And only two beings in the entire galaxy make it. But if you were to drink it as a human, it'd make you a little, feel a little bit good, kind of fuzzy, you know, but not as strong as it, but for her, it kind of warps everything for her and is disruptive. So it's used against her on a couple of occasions and then to help her on another, to try to, to test whether or not that it is really her, you know, because she's the only person who reacts that way in the whole galaxy to this drink. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a weird plot point to use the strophy liqueur. And I, I like using food as, as like a test or a plot point because, I mean, it, it's it's a choice, right? It's a, it's a point of agency, except in the case of Gala, that on occasion she was slipped this drink, not mm-hmm. knowing what it was going to do to her at the time. So, but I, I like it when there is a choice that you have to, t- you have to drink this drink in order to do this, or you have to you know, consume the seed in order to survive or subsist. I, you know, it's a fun thing to do because we, we, we think about things that we can eat or not eat that affect mm-hmm. our lives. Um, some, some people have food allergies and it's like, you have to be incredibly careful, but like in terms of like getting to a goal, it seems like food, because it is something we have to have to survive. I think having a choice is a point in which we realize we are beyond scarcity, right? Like mm-hmm. you can choose to consume something that means you have that choice which is not always the case for humans you know yeah it, it seems like food in many cases can be take can take on a magical element especially when it can change who you are or give you powers for a little bit of time and actually last week's episode on magic systems they talked about in the oh gosh I'm gonna forget what it's called but there's like uh, magical beings that drink metal it's the Brandon Sanderson books, Mistborn, <laughs> the Mistborn yeah. books. You drink metal and then that allows you to control metal. And it's all based off of like what you um, drink and because it's a finite resource. It's like, it's limiting. Um, I always think that's really interesting how, how conscious we are and how much we as a society love, truly love food because it's used so often as a tool. Right. It is. Do you think, okay. Um, what I, I, I wanted to come up with some cool genres and kind of workshop with you. What kind of food would you expect to see in these certain settings? Okay. Okay. Medieval fantasy. Probably a, probably a giant stein of some kind of beer. Okay. <laughs> and how would you differentiate the, the everyday people? What would they eat and drink versus the wealthy? I think the everyday people would have 
food mostly that they've grown or that in their close communities have grown like they're very much in tune with the seasons they can't get exotic spices by and large so it'd be simple fare that's hearty stews okay. and breads um home-brewed beer um you know anything that is, can be made from what they they have or can trade for and then you know the more royal or sort of you know elite they would be able to get food from faraway places and spices and sugars and things like that and they would have elaborate because they're not doing the cooking they're not doing the baking so someone mm -hmm. else an entire staff a downstairs is taking care of all that and making you know daintier foods and you know aged wines that are from special grapes or something or some other fruit you know and special ciders that couldn't be got elsewhere so for them it's you know, they don't, they don't break bread the same way, you know, as, you know, the down home folk would, mm -hmm. would do, you know, it's for them, it's, it's a status thing, you know? Yes. And, and sticking with medieval for a little bit, just simply because it keeps us on earth for a minute, um, with my list, uh, how should a writer consider ecologies or geographic location when it comes to, um, establishing the food in their story? Well, ecology, I like to talk about ecology and world building. I had a, a science fiction writers association article in which I do that very thing for science fiction, fantasy and horror. And you have to think about where can food grow versus not. And, and you know, for wine lovers, Appalachians are areas of different where different wine grapes can grow. And that it has to do with the slope, the sun angle, you know, the climate and all these different factors that can give the, the wine terroir or like just a unique flavor that could only be got there. And the same thing can happen with dairy milk, you know, like cows consuming a certain kind of grass, like on the Oregon coast, their milk tastes very different from, you know, a factory farm cow milk, you know, that's given, you know, processed greens or whatever. So having to think about that, um, you have to, you have to consider that world building involves thinking about where you're at and what can survive. And so it's it's a challenge to our characters. If you can only get a certain kind of food, a certain kind of year, you know, isn't an agrarian society? Can they be permanently there? Would they benefit? Will their orchards grow fruit in this one slope? Or do they need it on another slope where there's better sun and better drainage? You know, mm. do they need pollinators? that can only help their nut trees grow, you know, and so do they have beehives or whatever other pollination factors in. And so ecology plays a massive role in that um, situation. That's so interesting. Yeah. It makes me think about how different, like different conditions can set you up for different successes or failures where, where I live, for example, the ground is really hard and we can get a couple, like a couple of rainfalls in a week, but then it'll saturate the ground. And then at that point, the rain just slides along the ground, which right. creates a lot of flash flooding. Right. And uh, too. Yeah. okay. Yeah. And so sometimes like when there's flooding and things are just sliding on, like it's, it's difficult to, to grow in that area. Cause everything is just like moving. Right. So we have washes in these areas and you can never build in there. And it's always interesting to think like, okay, when you're building a medieval or, you know, community and there's geographic Im impacts to it, being able to consider, okay, what are all those little causes and effects that could actually affect the food industry? Right. Yeah. What are some failures like that you can build in that can impact the food industry? I mean, I, I, weather is an obvious one, but is there anything else? Yeah. Natural disasters come to mind. Like if you, I mean, obviously if you have a a place where you get flash floods or snowstorms and you're you're limited to you know or frosts like a deep freeze situation where you have this horrible freeze and it ruins your crops uh, or blight things like that mm -hmm. you know, sort of pests that can come along and and eat everything or or you know like micro microorganisms that you know are detrimental invasive species that come mm, in yes or like poison gets into the water supply yeah and any sort of toxic runoff that could be naturally caused or otherwise you know so if you if it was like a medieval fantasy and you you know there was a volcano eruption and the runoff came downstream and ruined killed fish in the stream ruined the crops you know so all these different things could factor in and affect your food supply and your drinking water supply 
Interesting. So when diving into like the magical application of food, I think of Harry Potter where they just kind of, I forgot what the spell, I don't even know if they said the spell in the book, but they just wave their wand and they make food appear. But I think that there was like a concept that you can't create something from nothing. But what are your thoughts on when like magic is used to create food from nothing or to just create food in general? Well, I think magic is, I, I don't, we always like to talk about magic in science fiction is technology that hasn't been invented yet and mm -hmm. so it doesn't have a call so since you can't create or destroy matter you know if you're using magic the way i would think of it is like you're drawing from material in your surroundings on earth or middle earth or wherever it is and so you're in you're invoking an arrangement of that into food it's almost like a magic replicator. Interesting. Yeah, then I'm like, will we be 3D printing food one day? And I you mean, are. I know you already are. Oh, but tell yeah. me about that. What do you know about that? So as I recall, this was going to be something that was tested on the International Space Station that you could 3D print things, but we're we're 3D printing foods kind of at a rudimentary level right now. And the goal though is to eventually be able to 3D print you know, great protein sources like a steak so that you don't have to take it from an animal, right? You would print a steak, you know, mm -hmm. out of the raw materials and get as close to that as you can. So eventually we will basically have replicators. It's not going to be, it's not an unfeasible thing. It is a possible thing where you draw upon resources and you make something out of it, you know? And so that's kind of what we're looking at now. And I think, you know, I mean, on a smaller scale and a modern scale, like you can go to these different fast food restaurants and you can pick whatever flavor of Sprite or whatever yes. you want. Like, hey, I'm going to mix it up today. It's going to be cherry, lime, grape. Let's go hog wild. And so like that would have been miraculous even, you know, 50 years ago to just be able to press some buttons and make that right. So we would have been like, yes. But so it's coming. It, these are these are things that we can do, you know. That leads me to the next setup, which is space operas. So how do you feed your people in a spaceship? Would it have to be through a tool like that? Are there other ways that people have explored food production? So on a spaceship, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you can't dock, that's a whole different situation than if you're at this really self-sustaining area that's like, you know, got all the shops and cafes and food supplies. So Think of it like in, in my in heliopause where I have a space station at the edge of the solar system. They don't get a supply run all that often. And even our international space station, we have to send food up, right? Uh, they're not growing enough in capacity. They do grow some food, uh, but you can't really, you know, sustain yourself on that. So we have to send food there. There's other communities on earth where you have to, you know, export and import a lot of stuff just to be able to survive, but a contained spaceship is going to need to be super sustainable. So you would need, you know, you'd need the potential for food storage, but you, I think you also would have to be able to generate 3D print, replicate, whatever you want to call food from just common materials that you could get. And so, you know, maybe your, maybe your ship comes pre-programmed with a set of organic chemicals and it just mixes those and makes those for you has to be sustainable. You want to be able to be able to travel and not dock for a long time in case something goes wrong. You want it to be, if the power goes down, you still need a food backup of some kind. You would need food storage, you know, for like MREs, like meals ready to eat, like the military have, right? So, I, yeah. I think of astronaut food too, like a little, right, little exactly. packet of food. Dried, dehydrated food. If you can add water, you're good. You know, is it, is it, tip is it better to go in the direction of replicated food or can you go into the world of like recreating farmland, but on a spaceship, is that even possible? Cause you would need sunlight, but I guess you could fabricate that. Yeah, you could. Um, and that's something else I did with Mandela research stations that has a conservatory in which you can grow plants and fungi and um, have those as part of your food source in addition to sort of generating and 3D printing and, and also like long-term storage foods, like energy bars and things like that. So you have a a range of nutritional sources. And I think it is important to have, if you can't, if you have the space and that is a limiting factor. Um, if you have a space station, you probably got the space to have some plants and whatnot. But on a small spaceship, you're, you would be very limited uh, into what you could grow. And so it's less than ideal for that, you know. And, and then you, it, you'd want to be able to dock somewhere and get a fresh supply of produce. Yeah, I was thinking if you had a lot of, 
you know how we talk about now with produced food and how it's having an effect on people's health. And I was reading about colorectal cancer spiking in younger ages, and I'm not sure what the causes are, but they're talking about like a lot of it could be linked to just the increase in processed foods and access to, you know, uh, processed foods. So I, I imagine like whatever we come up with as a food source may have some sort of domino effect on healthcare or at least our physical health in the story. Maybe, but I would hope because it's already kind of happening that we would have an AI situation that would be able to recognize if a food is causing you shorter long-term harm, you would know that immediately. I would love that. I want that. It will happen. I mean, you know, this is being worked on. So like, I can't keep up with this stuff because as a science writer, that's the other facet of my job. Some kind of, there's some bleed through and I, I keep up with, you know, tailored medical care and solutions to food problems. So that's just something, a playground in which we can all participate because we're going to see it happening before too much longer in which we will know how things affect our body in real time. And oh my gosh, it's amazing. I would love that. That would solve so many, that would answer so many questions. Right. So well I would project that in the future you would know, you know, so we would we would also if if we have the ability to know how a food is going to affect you, then you could potentially have food sources that you could print that would be directly tailored to your own nutritional and genetic needs, you know, that you have propensity for, you know, this particular condition, or you have, you, you do have this existing condition and you, you get a food that's generated to be able to work with your body. Like, you know, say you're lactose intolerant, that's a no brainer. You'd have food that's no lactose and, or, you know, I don't know, maybe we edit those genes in the future and we don't need to worry about that. But um, I definitely think tailored food, tailored medicine is a future thing that would we would have on spaceships of, that would travel. So if because if, if you already got the tech to be able to be out in space, you've definitely got the tech to take care of the food. So that that's such an optimistic uh, future. So just to play now, what would the what would the scary side of that be? Well, obviously it could be weaponized. Um, someone could figure out what your weakness is. And if, if they didn't get you by another mean, if they wanted to be extremely subtle, you know, or be able to control you in some way, then they could potentially slowly poison you or, or trick you or weaken you or something like that. By it, oh my, it'd be like when you try to take down your enemy by poisoning like the chili that the, that the, right. or like if you wanted to, you know, it's, it's like for Superman having kryptonite, like if you had just this little bitty thing that would just definitely be somebody's undoing and enough, not enough to take them out, but to control them because it's often about control. Right. You know, so. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I hope no evil dictators are listening right now. <laughs> Okay. Um, uh, moving right along. I think we're doing good on time. Post-apocalypse. What do you do about food in the post-apocalypse? Ooh. Well, I guess if you look, if you're Mad Max, you look for dog food cans. Um, that was one thing that always struck me as good world building for Mad Max, uh, mm-hmm. Road Warrior back in the eighties when I first watched those movies. And I was like, that's actually brilliant. I mean, if you could find it, you know, you're golden. So any, any shelf-stable food that you could find would be a good thing. But if not, you're going to have to grow it. You know, there's no way around it. So yeah. in that case, we wouldn't have the tech to produce the food for us. We have to go back to our agrarian roots and figure it out. It's always interesting because I always think, um, you know, like a lot of dystopian societies kind of represent the the fall of society or like the rise of an oppressive thing. But I always think like, and then in the case of what is it called where the all the boys are dumped on an island a plane crash on the island and they just chaos kind of takes over them yeah. i'm forgetting the title at the moment because well, anyway I mean, that's, that covers like a multiple things it covers like um lord of the flies it covers lost yeah. it covers like all that sort yeah. of stuff, like right murder <laughs> islands with limited resources yes but i, I always think <laughs> I, and it's, I mean, I definitely, you see cases today where like what we're taking is we're mirroring like scary situations from around the world and placing them in these circumstances. But I also think about like where we came from and how we got to a place and we're able to create the governments that we have and the societies that we have, and nothing is perfect, of course, but the, the optimistic turn is what if people actually 
just kind of figured it back out again. Like when you destroy an anthill and they just rebuild it, you know, like the apocalypse for them was when you stepped on it, but they just rebuilt it and everything's good again. Well, that's what we've done throughout history. We've started over and over after multiple disasters, you know, mm -hmm. that's just what we do, you know, in a post-apocalyptic situation through our frame of thought right now, I mean, that's happened throughout history. You know, mm -hmm. history's had its apocalyptic moments and wiped out whole civilizations, you know, because of limit resource destruction or whatever, volcanic event, super droughts, um, you know, all these kinds of things. It's already happened. So obviously, like we are survivors, we will figure it out. Mm hmm. Okay. And then I had some other ideas, but I didn't know how much how useful they were. But in the, in the horror genre, what what can writers do to play with food? <laughs> Well, oftentimes you're the prey. Ooh. I talk about that in that world building article on ecology. I said, you know, in, in an ecological system, in a, we have a food chain, right? We have an apex predator and then we have various forms of prey. And then we have, you know, like plants at the bottom, right? So at the top you have like the eagle or the tiger or the human. And so in the case of horror, your apex predator is the villain, the monster, the slasher, and it can either directly go after you for food, AKA a vampire or similar, or it can go after, you know, your whole way of life and anything like that. And, or can consume your soul and, you know, it's consuming something, it's attacking you, it's taking your resources, it's taking your life potentially. So, you know, it's the apex predator in this situation. And oftentimes when it comes to food and horror, if you're not the food, um, then something like your blood is the food, um, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So, or your brain, you know, if you've got the zombie thing going on, your brain is the food, <laughs> you know, oh, there's cannibalism. There's uh, you know, it's all kinds of horror is great because you can just, anything can be the predator or the prey or some intermingling, of course, like in alien, you know, you have this this predator, this apex predator running loose on the ship, just picking everybody off, you know, for its Scooby snacks. And then, um, you know, the actual predator of the movie, of course, is a hunter. So then then that's a situation of it's like, if, are they doing it for sport? Are they doing it for survival? Of course, predator does it for sport, but would have originally done it for survival, right? Mm -hmm. um, as an apex predator. So then an alien doing it just wants to needs to survive needs to reproduce needs to be able to you know subsist I course, am, yeah I'm so impressed by how quick you are I honestly didn't know like with the horror thing because when I first came up with the idea for horror I was like thinking oh Pan's Labyrinth they had food on the table <laughs> but like oh, yeah then there's the poison aspect right like where mm -hmm. you would you could kill people you know that's another facet of it too but yeah it's either you're the prey directly or you become the prey you know, so wow. that's the food dynamic there. And you can play in it like poisonous wine, you know, blood, all these different things, like slowly starving, like sucking the life force out of you or whatever. Um, so, so you can go yeah. wild with, with that. I'm just like, I'm a little blown away. I didn't even occur to me when you're like, we're the food. I'm like, oh my God, you're right. We are. The food. <laughs> Okay. So my favorite thing to do is buy recipe books that are inspired by movies, TV shows, books, and games. And I currently have one that's the unofficial Legend of Zelda cookbook by awesome. Amy. I have to drop that. It's the best cookbook I've ever had. So have you tried any recipes from a movie, TV show, book, or game? My, I have. I have. Um, and I actually wrote an article about this kind of cookbook that is online somewhere. I could provide the link. Um, I went through down through several cookbooks that are genre related, but when I was growing up and I was reading the little house books, I was also reading the Anna Green Gables books and I was obsessed. Like there's a lot of talk about food and drink in those too. So I ended up buying a cookbook for like the little house cookbook and then the Anna Green Gables cookbook so that I could make the things that I was reading about. I love, love, love that kind of stuff. And then like later, like you can make, there's like a dune, like a melange, like a spice cookie that you can make. So I love stuff like that. You know, it's so fun, especially when you're doing it for like a watching party, like right. Game of Thrones watch party. It's kind of fun. Right. There's a, there's some really great cookbooks related to that, you know? So awesome. I love stuff like that. And it's been, I've been asked, you know, like, would you ever do a cookbook based on your work? So I'm like, absolutely. I would, because I've actually made a cookbook before, but it was like a community cookbook. Um, so I, and because like I said before, 
my favorite nonfiction thing to read is cookbooks. So like probably eventually I will make a cookbook of some kind. Um, and it would be it be an ordinary cookbook though? Or would it be like stories and, and other would, things? I would probably have at least some anecdotes. Like I would have a genre one, right? Okay. Speculative fiction cookbook, but I would also have a cultural one because I grew up in Southern Appalachia and I know a lot of food lore from that region. I might have one specific to that. I might have one that's West Coast US specific because I really dug into that when I moved West in 2000 and I've not looked back and I've just, I'm all about like, where, where is this, where can you get these locally produced things you can't get anywhere else? Like, where can you get Marion berries? Where can you get a certain kind of ice wine in the Northwest? Where can wow. you get certain kinds of almonds in the Central Valley of California? What grows on the coast? You know, so that's the ecology and the food lover coming back and forth with me and figuring out all these special foods that you can't get anywhere else, special cheeses, special, whatever, you know, that it's just totally unique to every food region. And so I think of food as tourism in a lot of ways. You mentioned food lore. Do you, do you know one that you could share off the top of your head? Food, what food lore from the so, uh, Appalachian um, region? We, we had uh was a lot. There's a lot, but like um, biscuits are a big deal. So there's the whole Rocky Top, the song Rocky Top, which my alma mater, University of Tennessee, sings it at all the football games. Good old Rocky Top, you know. But in that song, it says corn won't grow at all on Rocky Top rocks. You know, dirt's too rocky by far. So that's kind of true that like Appalachia was like this set of islands of communities that really weren't, except in the river valleys, like on the, on the hills and the hollers, not ideal for growing much, you know, because it was hard land to till. So you would subsist on whatever you could, right? And so oh, there's a lot of, so the thing about Southern Appalachia is like, there's an incredible number of endemic plant species there. It's incredibly species rich. A lot, a lot of people know that, um, but there are a lot of fascinating, unique plants, fungi, the whole works that you can have there that are nowhere else. And so one of the, one of the trees that my ancestors would have uh, would be pawpaw, which is sort of a papaya-like fruit. And it's not super shelf stable. So that's why I don't see it mass market. You know, you would get it there and it was sweet. And um, that was part of the food. They ate, they ate a lot of um, pecans in the South and then various nuts and then um, muscat grape, muscadine grapes. Um, you, you would later get some invasive species like kudzu, but you can actually eat the, uh, the leaves of kudzu that are young uh, in a salad, you know, flowers and roots roots were a big deal sassafras roots you know leading eventually to like root beer and you know oh, like that's the, where it comes from <laughs> yeah so it's actually it's actually based off of roots you know and sassafras is one of them and i remember when i was a kid i would pluck the leaves of sassafras and chew on the stem and it was like the sweet taste so um and one of so in the shadow galaxy there is a little there's a section on Appalachia and in the later in the book. And one of them is a nonfiction piece talking about sourwood honey days and how I would go with my father and we would go up into the mountains, like grandfather mountain. And there would be stands of like candy apples and fruit, other fruits and jams, but there would be sourwood honey. And it only comes from there because of the sourwood tree, the blossoms of that, the bees go for that. And it's a, it's a highly unique honey. It's not like any other honey. So you can only get it there. And that would be, dad would just make that his whole thing every year, go get the, go get the honey for the year, you know, up in there. So there's sourwood honey and biscuits, you know, like we used to have, uh, some people call it cat head biscuits. Cause like biscuits as big as a cat's head, you know? So when I, when I think of biscuits, I think of two things. I think of the warm, fluffy ones that you eat mm -hmm. with gravy or i think of the british cookie right <laughs> is that right. what's so, okay. having a british husband it's been we've been learning back and forth and so i grew up in east tennessee and i've had biscuits and gravy my entire life i've made a lot of biscuits um and we're talking about the fluffy okay they they look like a, a lightweight scone you know mm -hmm. but it's it's not a scone and it's not a cookie you know so um and that's definitely a thing like that whole area is very much into the biscuits and there's another thing called country ham which is sort of southern appalachia's version of parma i suppose it's an incredibly salty preserved ham and they would slice off and i apologize to all vegetarians but just so um but it is part of the lore it's like you would have country ham and mm -hmm. biscuits gravy 
Other things that would be in the area, um, gosh, there's a lot of wild berries. Um, that kind of figures into a lot of the stories I write about that area because I grew up next to a train track that was just, coat, the banks were coated with blackberries. And so I would go and do a big blackberry you know, picking session in the summer. And we, we just had loads of them and we would, we would can them or we would use them in cobblers or we would freeze a bunch of them for later in the year. So wow. you, know, you, you live off the land still to this day. And then, um, you know, there's like Granger County tomatoes in East Tennessee in Hawkins County, magnificent heirloom quality Granger County tomatoes, nothing else like it anywhere. The best tomatoes on earth. So you know, it's just, there's a lot of food heritage there that I could yeah. talk about all day, literally. That's so nice. If I tried to go collect berries off of the local bushes here, I think I might die. <laughs> like, <I don't... laughs> it, was, it wasn't super pleasant because it would always be the hottest time of the year and tons of mosquitoes. So, you, but you would have to dress like long sleeves, long pants, because you'd get scratched up to death, you know? Yeah. Um, but the berries would be like, and then it's just enormous. And That's you have to- amazing. And edible. Yeah. The berries we have out here are poisonous. <laughs> like, yeah, these, are, these are big blackberries. And so they're, they're great. Once in a while you'd get raspberries, but that was less common. They didn't do quite as well in that heat. So, wow. That's amazing. Well, this was an, an amazing discussion for me. You were so knowledgeable. I loved hearing from you. Do you have any final remarks on food in fiction? I would say that if you have, so many of us have food memories and things that brought us comfort or connect to a part of our lives, if you can incorporate a food memory, even if you're twisting it so that it is this wholly new food, do that in your fiction because readers really pick up on that and respond. We bond to that, you know, as part of our shared history and, you know, you got to eat to live, but at the same time, it really helps flesh out your world to have food be a big part of it. That's wonderful. And how can our listeners follow you? I am pretty much universally at J Diane Dotson on social media with one exception. So that's J D I A N N E D O T S O N Twitter, Instagram, most places. My Facebook page is at J Diane Dotson writer. My website is J Diane And remember that's Diane with two N's and yeah, so I'm, I'm out there. Come find me, come follow me. I've got a book out tomorrow and then more books coming and exciting stuff happening. And I love to talk about fiction and I love to talk about food. So happy to do it. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.